Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I'm not really the co-host of the show. I was just once wearing the costume that the co-host of the show wore, and then these guys confused me with that because it was the same costume, and now here we are. That is so crazy, and I would love to know what the costume of Awesome Movie Year co-host looks like. <laughs> Today, it's just black t-shirts. Uh, no one can see that. But yeah, no, 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 one, it up. no wonder you get confused, because that's a very common uh, thing to wear. So unfortunately, we may end up having like a whole lineup of fake Awesome Movie Year co-hosts who just are uh, pressed into service. Some people are probably rooting for that, Josh. Oh. <laughs> No, it's it's much like the stars of today's movie. We have a certain undefinable chemistry that makes this podcast so enjoyable. Yeah, if they were ever going to remake this movie, you and I would probably be the <laughs> the two top choices to team. I'd up watch here. that. I mean, really, you could say that for any movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Josh, it's funny that you say that because we can announce now that you and I are uh, co-starring in the new version of Class Act. We are the new kid in play. Uh, that's may a, maybe that's one to, to pick out there. Maybe maybe after that, you and I can re-team to reboot Baby Mama. We could be the new Polar and Faye. You know, uh, spin these things. You know, give some white guys some chances, right? All right. Well, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1980. And why are we talking about uh, iconic comedy teams like Josh Bell and Jason Harris? It's because this episode is our producer, David Rosen's pick. And he picked a movie starring an iconic comedy team. So, Dave, what did you pick for us to talk about? I picked Stir Crazy with the iconic comedy team Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, which uh, I hadn't seen in a long time, but I was really uh, excited to revisit. And this is this is one that you watched uh, as a child inappropriately shown yes. by your parents. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I remember the, my mom just pointing out how funny everything was and how great they were and yeah, this was definitely a, a childhood favorite. Right, right. That seems like I, we've had a few of those, at least, right, <laughs> yes. of your picks over time. Yeah. It's got to be weird to be Dave and be like, you know, a 40-year-old man being like, Bambi, what is this? I never saw this as a kid. The Rescuers, I have no, <laughs> I have no concept of what this film is. But if you want to talk about, you know, Police Academy, the first one, I watched that on my fourth birthday. You joke, but that is so true. I don't know that if I've ever seen Bambi, but uh, yeah. And Bambi traumatized a lot of little kids. So Police Academy was probably a, a safer choice in a way. Probably. Although I, I remember Police Academy specifically being, I don't know, maybe 11 years old or something and going to a friend's house and they had Police Academy on VHS, which the first one is rated R. So I had never been able to see it and being very excited that I could, uh, sleeping sleeping over at this friend's house, watch this forbidden Police Academy movie. Yeah, well, there's that whole sequence where Gutenberg uh, uh, spies on the women in the shower. So I think uh, any 11-year-old would probably... <laughs> I'll be happy to see that. <laughs> it's just the idea. I think that it was forbidden. I remember this kid had a bunch of R-rated movies on VHS that we watched like the first time I went to his house. 
Anyway, we're not talking about Police Academy. We are talking about Stir Crazy, which was a huge hit in 1980. It grossed $101.3 million on its $10 million budget, making it the third highest grossing movie of 1980 behind The Empire Strikes Back and the movie that we talked about in our box office champion episode to kick off this season nine to five. And it was the second movie that Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor teamed up in following 1976's Silver Streak, which was also a big hit and clearly the reason that they were able to team up again in this film. And uh, it was part of director Sidney Poitier's kind of transition from his uh, leading man status to his somewhat unlikely second act career as a director of wacky comedies, mostly. So an interesting transition that Sidney Poitier made there, although he kept acting as well. Josh, lots of firsts here. First film directed by an African-American to break $100 million. Richard Pryor, first black actor to earn $1 million for a movie. Sidney Poitier, first film he directed that he didn't star in. So lots of interesting things there. And then what I found most interesting is the first week this movie was out, it made almost $13 million. And the second week, it made almost $15 million. So you know, of course, back in 1980, you know, word of mouth must have been so great because you always see that drop off. And this did better in the second week than it did in the first week. Yeah, and you can absolutely see that this as being one of those movies that people went to see and just were telling all their friends about how hilarious it was and that the reputation would have built over time. Because, I mean, obviously, Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder were both very famous and they had previously teamed up in that other movie. But this itself maybe wasn't as known a quantity, but people going to see it and just laughing their heads off and then going to tell their friends about it. That absolutely seems like the kind of movie that this would be. It was a huge hit. It was not nominated for any big awards, but sadly, and this is really one of the, we've talked about many low points for the Razzies, but really one of the lower points for the Razzies, which again, 1980 was the first year of the Razzies, as we've talked about. George Stanford Brown, who plays one of the fellow inmates at the prison where Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor's characters end up. And he plays a, a gay character who really for, I don't know, maybe two or three minutes of the movie, disguises himself in drag as part of their escape plan and got a Razzie nomination for Worst Supporting Actress as George Stanford Brown in drag, which is really just straight up homophobia. <laughs> That's all it is. Uh, I mean, you know, there. Uh, I'm not defending it. Okay, so, so let's just say there was a lot of... Um, there was some homophobic humor in this too. So, yes. you know, there, you know, it's uh, without defending the Razzies, I think they would say like, Hey, this example was set by them. I mean, you're not wrong. There is definitely homophobic humor in this movie, although maybe slightly less than I expected when I first saw this character show up and realized, okay, that's, that's what's going on. That's who this person is. But I think the Razzies by singling this character out and nominating George Sanford Brown for this worst supporting actress as being in drag is basically saying the fact that this male actor sure. dressed as a woman is is the worst. That's right. all we're pointing out. And, and it just seems it's very distasteful. Yes. On the other hand, Josh, um, you had mentioned this was the third highest grossing film of 1980. I looked up the top 10. 
Six of them were comedy movies, Josh. So can you imagine today six of the top 10 box office hits being comedy movies? That's I can't imagine movie. today one of the top 10 box office <laughs> hits being a comedy movie, actually. You mentioned Nine to Five and then Stir Crazy, Any Which Way You Can, Private Benjamin, Smokey and the Bandit 2, and the Blues Brothers. So. And and as we mentioned in one other episode, Private Benjamin also got an Oscar nomination for Best Actress, right? I mean, for Goldie Hawn, like... This all this kind of stuff, I feel like does not it, it just doesn't happen for comedy movies and really like broad comedy movies, not the kind of comedy movies that the Golden Globes these days claims are comedies that don't really have jokes in them. Like right. this is a this is a joke driven, silly comedy movie. You know, whether you like it or not, this is certainly a silly movie. And I think there's still an audience for this, as we see with. Streaming. I mean, you know, there's a reason Adam Sandler has a six picture Netflix deal and that Vacation Friends was the top streamer on Hulu last year. People still love comedies. I just it's a weird time for comedies, as we as we've mentioned. Where does it fit in the landscape? Right. Yeah. People still love them and they do succeed very well on streaming. But movie studios don't really push them as big theatrical releases. And even if they do come out in theaters, they never make the kind of huge money that would get them in the top 10 of the box office for the whole year compared to big franchise action pictures. I mean, the, I feel like the closest that we would get to a comedy being in the top 10 would be something like Deadpool or whatever, where it's like, oh, it's a superhero movie, but it has comedy in it. But yeah, even these like action comedies that were like so popular 10 years ago, I don't even think those get released as, you know, uh, in the in the theaters anymore. Yeah, some of them do. But but again, I think to achieve the level of success to be one of the biggest movies of the whole year at the box office is not something that happens. But this movie did. And it got mixed reviews from critics. It's got thumbs up from Siskel and thumbs down from Ebert on Siskel and Ebert, although they weren't all that far apart in their opinions. Uh, I think both of them found it a bit uneven, but Siskel overall found enough laughs in it to continue to enjoy it. And and Ebert had some positive things to say. He thought the first half was much better than the second half. And even at one point in the Siskel and Ebert episode recommended that people go see the first half and then leave, <laughs> which is a weird <laughs> thing that I'm sure no one would actually do. So in his, in his written review, Roger Ebert said, Stir Crazy seems to change its mind halfway through about the kind of movie it wants to be. It starts strong. It's a comedy that teams up, once again, Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, who were the best things in the big 1977 hit Silver Streak. Once Wilder and Pryor are thrown into prison, it seems to lose its way. Inexplicably, the movie gets bogged down in developing its own plot. That is not always the best thing for a comedy to do, because if we're not laughing, it hardly matters what happens to the plot. We go in with big expectations, and we laugh so much at the beginning that we're ready for the movie to launch itself as a hit. And then it all goes flat, and we come out disappointed. After Silver Streak, there was room in the world for a great Wilder prior comedy. There still is. So I watched Silver Streak this week, and uh, and see no evil, hear no evil, and I did not watch another You, the last one that they made together. Silver Streak is my favorite of the bunch. Um, I think that's a really fun action comedy. It's weird that he says they're the best things in it. Like G it's Gene Wilder for two hours and Richard Pryor comes in an hour in, which is not how they would structure it today. But yes, that chemistry is there. Like it's their movie. So 
of course, are the best things in it, I think, you know. Right. Um, I do agree that it does become uneven. Act one is fun, and then it kind of yanders and peters, but it does pick up in act three again. Yeah, see, I don't know. I felt like it, I wasn't all that into it, really, even from the beginning. But, and I, this is not on my wavelength, comedy-wise, I guess I would I would say. So I wasn't really laughing much. But I do agree with with what Ebert says that, this movie focuses so much in that third act on the elaborate prison escape that they plan and showing the mechanics of it over and over again and, and the prison rodeo and whether Gene Wilder's character is going to be able to stay on the buck and bronco or whatever. And, and none of that to me was interesting. And a lot of it isn't funny or even joke filled or whatever. It's just mechanics of escaping or whatever. So I did feel like that lost momentum. And this movie also is a bit episodic where it's not plot driven until it suddenly is. I mean, it's kind of meandering the whole first half hour doesn't even have anything to do with them in prison. It's them in New York City and trying to figure out their lives as they're struggling. One of them is a playwright and the other one is an actor and neither of them are achieving any success. And it takes a while for them to actually get to the point where they're being convicted of this crime that they didn't commit and sent to prison, which is the central idea of the movie. But there's a lot of other stuff going on there and it, it kind of meanders for a while. So I almost would have rather that it meandered rather than getting laser focused on this whole elaborate uh, prison escape. And it's interesting because like I do think like even I just mentioned Silver Streak and Prior doesn't come until an hour in and it's like so you're getting all this kind of other stuff. And uh, they, a lot of these were a little looser structurally, I think, um, in the 80s and the 70s. But I I liked the prison break. I thought it was good. You know, you're talking about the mechanics. It worked for me. I thought it was fun. I thought that would be something you would see more in a movie of today, some big, exciting um, prison break. But Dave, you, uh, you picked this movie. Which uh, side of the coin are you falling on, Harris or Bell? <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of neither, really. I mean, I actually like the middle the most. I, I uh, like the the dang. beginning, and I like the middle where it's just jokes. You know, it's just jokes for the sake of jokes, and I think that they're really funny together. Uh, the the whole ending, I I agree with Josh. Like it, it kind of, I don't know, it just kind of lost me. It, it wasn't as funny anymore, and I didn't really care that much about the prison break. So it just doesn't exactly work for me. But I thought both the beginning. And the middle were the best parts. And and I thought the middle, like Josh, like you said, it got so episodic of him, like, oh, they're going to torture you and just go along with it. And it, it was like, it was repetitive and it didn't like have any momentum to it. So I kind of, you know, it, it would have been easy to zone out in that part. Yeah, I, I agree. But I think Dave, you know, what you're saying is kind of what Ebert is saying too, is that the movie loses its focus in that prison break sequence on even having comedy. Like whether right. you thought it was funny or not, there's just long stretches there where it's not even trying to be funny. It's just yeah. like, look at how they broke out of prison. And that just seems like the wrong thing for a movie like this to focus on. Yeah, it gets too stuck on trying to complete the story. And really, we're here for them being funny. Exactly. So Vincent Canby in the New York Times hated this movie. He said, Stir Crazy is a prison comedy of quite stunning humorlessness. Considering its cast and that it was directed by Sidney Poitier, who has a couple of raffishly attractive comedies to his credit, and that Bruce J. Friedman wrote it. What appears on the screen, though, appears to have been improvised badly more often than written. 
Mr. Wilder and Mr. Pryor are less a comedy team than a comedy competition. They don't sustain each other. Frequently, they appear to be tolerating each other's turn in front of the camera. Stir Crazy is an energetic but spiritless shambles. Uh, you know, it's so weird because I don't, I don't mind that he doesn't like the movie, but like to say that there's no chemistry between the two leads is kind of uh, baffling to me. Yeah, and the idea there that they're not like feeding off each other, but in fact, in sort of opposition to each other, I didn't see that at all. Like I said, I didn't really find most of this funny. But to me, it seems obvious, especially in those scenes where clearly they're doing improv, where they're one-upping each other and they're definitely having fun kind of pushing each other to greater and greater ridiculousness. And there's a um, comradeship between them that you see, like, uh, you know, that kind of warmth, that heart. You know, they said they wanted to make another movie together. They are having fun together. So it, it's just a strange review to get to your point. Yeah, I agree. I mean, again, I wasn't really into this movie, but I, I do think he's kind of missing the point there. And I didn't, I, I, although I will agree with him that a lot of those scenes of improv, like you can tell that they're having fun and they're pushing each other, but I didn't find it funny. And I definitely found it like, okay, where is this going? Like this feels like watching someone's improv exercise that doesn't have a point. Sure. But that also, I mean, you know, we mentioned Sidney Portier as a director that also has to come back to him in the edit, you know, with an improv, you're going to world build. And, you know, that's, that's their job is to get it down to the point, not to say that the performers shouldn't get to whatever the game is or whatever the full scene is. And they probably did. I mean, it's prior and wilder, like for us to critique them as comedy actors is, um, Ridiculous. But um, <laughs> I mean, we will anyway. <laughs> yes. But I'm saying like, you know, you can't you got to it's a it's a movie. It's not an, a stage show. So. Right. Right. And I agree. And who knows how much improv there was that that Poitier cut out? Who knows how much there was left on the cutting room floor? But maybe there should have been more. It should have been tighter. Right. You know, the story of Bridesmaids, Josh, the first cut, um, which, of course, you and I will be remaking soon. One of us is Kristen <laughs> Wiig. The other is Maya Rudolph. You know, the first cut is like four and a half hours, right? And um, it's because they were like, just put every improv in that they did and then we'll work and trim it down. So, you know, that form requires you to have a very uh, selective and uh, almost brutal eye on it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And weirdly, I think we talked about this with John Cassavetes when we talked about Gloria. And that's a different kind of improv. But, you know, he also has to be able to pare down the stuff that he puts into his films where he works with dramatic improv. And it's the same kind of thing. You have to take that raw material and shape it. And maybe it's not as tight as it could be here. So to give a counterpoint, however, uh, Gary Arnold in the Washington Post was a big fan of this. He said, an inspired comedy title, Stir Crazy blends several inventive, high-spirited performing talents into a tangy, cheerful entertainment. The film may not do anything earth shattering, like erase your fondest memories of Some Like It Hot, but Stir Crazy is certainly the most spontaneous and enjoyable movie farce in recent memory. Think of Stir Crazy as the longest yard transformed into a pure comedy or a burlesque takeoff on Brubaker. Stir Crazy tries to allow the performers room for improvised comic specialties while keeping on a swift narrative track. Poitier seems to take delight in funny behavior for its own sake, 
but the plot remains in brisk forward motion as the characters are constantly plunged into fresh difficulties. So here, here Gary Arnold kind of disagreeing with what we were just talking about, about the improv being a bit shapeless. You know, it's funny because I did think of Brubaker, which we've talked about once or twice on here, you know, the Robert Redford movie where he's a warden reforming the system. Um, and that comes from, that's a serious movie, a drama with him, you know, as a progressive warden, as opposed to here where the reform come from the inmates. But it is an interesting comparison because they were out at around the same time. Uh, Josh, we should say neither of us got around. And I don't think either of us have seen, I mean, you saw Ghost Dad as a kid, <laughs> but really you haven't yeah. seen any other Sidney Portier directed comedies. No, no, I have not. And again, he was quite successful for a while as a comedy director leading up to this. He made several movies uh, starring himself and Bill Cosby, including Uptown Saturday Night, which is probably the most famous of the, uh, aside from this, of the comedy movies that he directed. And yeah, I mean, Ghost Dad came out in 1990. I saw it in the theater as a kid. I probably liked it, I guess. I'm sure it's very bad, but I have not seen it since then. And I certainly did not revisit it. But yeah, it's a weird thing that I feel like even if these movies are remembered as movies, I think the idea of Poitier as a comedy director is something that is not really remembered a whole lot anymore. Which, like you said, he did have a good successful run, especially from the mid 70s through this and, you know, and not just critically box office ones. Right. I mean, and Vincent can be there citing, you know, even not liking this movie saying, oh, I would have expected this to be good because it's directed by Sidney Poitier, who's a good director of comedies like already here. He has that reputation as, as as something that he would do. So did you not ever see Ghost Dad, Jason? Nope, I did not yeah. ever. See, nor nor have I seen Leonard Part Six. I also saw Leonard Part Six in the theater. I must have really been a big Bill Cosby. You were, fan, I guess. yeah, you were going to a lot of Bill Cosby movies, <laughs> and which. which is which is doubly weird because I wasn't a fan of the Cosby Show. So I don't know why I went and saw those movies. Uh, and I love the Cosby Show. I Ghost Dad, I feel like was maybe a thing where it was like the family, like, oh, here's a, you know, innocuous movie for us all to go see. But I remember being like excited to see Leonard Part Six and going to see it with a friend. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I in my mind, I had great joy of the idea of you sitting through Leonard Part Six alone as a child in a movie theater. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I ever did that as a child. Not anymore. So, Dave, have you seen Ghost Dad and or Leonard Part Six? I'm sure I saw Ghost Dad, maybe Leonard Part Six. I mean, these were the big comedies for a little bit there. So right. why wouldn't I have seen them, you know? Exactly. So yeah. more relevantly, Dave, you mentioned having seen this movie as a child, but then you didn't see it for a long time until just now. Yeah, no, I'm sure I saw it a few times at least back then, but it had been at least 20 years since the last time. And Dave, of the pairing, I mean, I know you rewatched See No Evil, Hear No Evil this week. Had you seen uh, Silver Streak or Another You? No, I've never seen Silver Streak or Another You. I Back at the same time that I watched Stir Crazy, I watched See No Evil, Hear No Evil. Also loved it as a kid. I liked it more this time than uh, Stir Crazy, but they're they're kind of even footing, I think. Yeah, I found all three kind of in that regard. And, and um, Silver Streak's my favorite, then See No Evil, and then this one. So this was okay. at the bottom of your list of those three. Yeah, but I ranked them all in similar fashion. If you go to my letterbox, go for Jason, please follow. Yeah. So, yeah, I weirdly, I saw this movie not as a kid, but just a few years ago as one of those, oh, I should catch up with this movie. It's such an iconic comedy movie. And I really did not like it then. 
And so going into it this time, I remembered like, oh, I didn't like this movie. And I didn't mind it as much this time. Uh, I think I, the first time had thought like, oh, this will be kind of, this will just be a fun laugh. And it just dragged and dragged and dragged. And this time um, I was more able to maybe pick out the occasional moments that I thought were amusing. But clearly, I, I mean, as we've talked about a lot of times with comedies, this was not on my wavelength or I was not on its wavelength. And so I did not then go watch other Wilder Pryor movies afterwards. And, and I think that this is kind of the blueprint for a lot of like super, super broad comedies of not the past 10 years, but before that, the last 10, 20 years that are usually not your thing, Josh. Right. That's true. And, and I think the the blueprint for the white guy, black guy, buddy comedies, to put it <laughs> yep. very crudely, um, uh, is something that that really emerged with with this and and with Silver Streak, I'm sure, as well. And there are many, many bad movies of that type yeah, that continue I, to be. It's almost unfair. <laughs> I mean, that is so unfair because it's like, it's not white guy, black guy. It's comedy legend Gene Wilder and comedy legend Richard. <laughs> right, right. I'm not I'm not referring to that. I mean, again, I know you're not. I know you're not. I'm saying, but to just think like, you know, oh, well, these two teamed up. We're a studio. Let's put another white guy and another black guy together. Right. right? And that's you know? certainly yeah. the lesson that studios would take from this. And, you know, as we can see in other movies or even as maybe we'll mention later, the Silver Street or the uh, Stir Crazy TV series. Mm. What? Just because we keep saying these aren't your types of comedies. Name like two or three comedies from the 80s that you really like. Oh, God. Well, this is putting me on the spot. I mean, some of them are probably movies that I hadn't seen in a long time. I mean, OK, we had a whole season on 1989 and we talked about Heathers, which is literally my favorite movie of all time. Mm -hmm. So that's a comedy. I definitely prefer that kind of dark comedy, usually over broad, silly comedy. But like I, I remember loving Ferris Bueller's Day Off, for example. Now, I haven't seen it in a while. And if we revisit it someday in an episode, maybe I wouldn't like it as much. But I, I loved that as a kid and even probably into my 20s had seeing it again, maybe. So that's uh, two very different movies. What about what head. about Spaceballs? And I did like Spaceballs, even though that's another one that I feel like if I revisit it, especially since we've talked about some Mel Brooks movies here that I have not really been keen on maybe I wouldn't like, and especially because I love Spaceballs when I was like, you know, 10 or 11 or whatever. And I'm not sure if those sensibilities are the same, but I also started loving Heathers when I was probably like 12 or something. So who knows? Well, Ferris Bueller does hold up. That's one of the greatest comedies that there is uh, of any generation. And I, I certainly believe that that would be the case, but I'm just saying it's been a little while. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be a hundred percent certain on my feeling of it unless I watched it again. But, uh, do you want to mention anything else on the background of this film, Jason? There were 350 prisoners as extras in this uh, movie, and they were all there for the prison rodeo. It was interesting that they actually wanted a prison rodeo like in Arizona at this time, and they couldn't fund it. And the fact that this movie came to town and, you know, the filmmaking and, you know, the set building actually helped fund the real prison rodeo after this. Well, that's <laughs> so. nice. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention, Josh, was uh, Charles Weldon, who played Blade when they did a walkout um, of the actors, was stopped by a guard and sent back to prison because they <laughs> thought he was real inmate. Wow. That's oh, no. talk about a, an immersive performance. And he said, I didn't mind to an actor that could, there couldn't have been a higher compliment. <laughs> there you go. All right, well, we'll come back in a moment and talk about more of our general thoughts on Stir Crazy. Mm -hmm. 
Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1980, we have been talking about our producer David Rosen's pick, Stir Crazy. And Dave, you talked a lot about your thoughts on this, but let's get some more from you. What What do you love most about this movie? What made you think of it again? It's hard to separate like their other movies from this one. Like it all kind of goes back to that same thing of their chemistry. The Gene Wilder is just this weird little guy <laughs> and Richard Pryor is this anxious, you know, on the surface, cool dude who's actually like super anxious and, and freaked out all the time. And uh, it works a lot here. When it works, it really works. And it's very funny. It didn't hold up quite as much as maybe, you know, I kind of had it in my head, but it was still really fun to revisit. And uh, like I said earlier, I, I ended up liking See No Evil, Hear No Evil even more. But this one still has a lot of funny. Like I said, I more so like the middle section the most. Once they get to prison is kind of most of my memories of the movie were those scenes, the them in prison, them entering the prison. You know, we're bad. We're bad. You know, that whole thing. On this rewatch, my first time like really laughing out loud was when Richard Pryor strikes the match off the guy's chest. And <laughs> that that whole scene was like really funny to me. Yeah, but most of the funny stuff to me happens in the prison. Like, And like you guys said, it is kind of repetitive, but it's a lot of fun improv jokes. Yeah, that's clearly where they're having a good time just being able to riff off each other. I think once you get to that prison break, there's so many logistical things that have to happen that there's less of a chance probably for them to just riff. And I wouldn't have minded seeing more things outside of the prison. Like I think of like stepbrothers when the two guys have to go out for job interviews and stuff like that. And I think it would have been funny to see more of their road trip and more of them kind of trying to acquiesce to this new world together because the prison, I thought, got a little repetitive. I think we could have taken some out and, and put some other outside of the uh, outside of that world in there. Right. And I was a little surprised, even though I hadn't seen this that long ago, but I guess I didn't remember all of the details, like how much time there is before they get to prison, because that's what the movie is known for. It's a movie about them being in prison and the stuff in New York where they're in the bar and Gene Wilder is trying to break up the fight and just weird New York things. And I, and I felt like one of the reviews that I was reading, um, not in the part I quoted, mentioned this, that the idea that they're like one is a playwright and one is an actor and that that they're these aspiring sort of artists is really abandoned. I, not having remembered all the details, thought, oh, do they go to prison and like start a prison, you know, acting program or something like that? That seemed to me more likely like Gene Wilder would write a play for the prisoners to star in. And none of that happens. So I, I felt like that detail almost became irrelevant. They're they're being aspiring, you know, theater people. I I have to disagree in that Gene Wilder said he was writing a play in prison and his, the whole love story with him and Joe Beth Williams is like, hey, will you be my date to opening night? And that that's literally the end of the movie. True. And that whole love story is completely like tacked on and weird and useless. And poor Joe Beth Williams is an extremely useless, thankless part that she's stuck with, even though she's like third build in this movie for some reason while having a very small part. Yes. I mean, not just her, but the actor uh, the who played Len Garber, Joel Brooks, also really had nothing to do as the lawyer, you know? Right. And their their presence becomes increasingly superfluous because the characters are focused on this this prison break. And, you know, not that this movie is realistic in any way, but it, I, I was sort of weirdly bugged to go to the yes. end of the movie. And so they break, they successfully break out of prison. Meanwhile, their lawyers have been working on their behalf and found the guys who really did it. 
And thus they are now going to be let, they would be let out of prison because it's, you know, uh, determined that they were not responsible. They were not guilty. And they, the lawyers come and tell them this and they're like, oh, cool, great. Let's just go now. It's like, that's not how that works. You need to go through the legal system. And I actually thought it would have been funnier if at the end of the movie, they've successfully broken out of prison. And now they're like, oh, we got to break back into prison so that we can legitimately be released. Otherwise, we'll be on the run forever. And they don't they don't do anything like that's that. That's the so. sequel, maybe. The, yeah, the that never made sequel. Or yeah. that could have been funnier there. Like you guys were released and now they send you back in and like, you know, like you said, now they have to plan another breakout or something. Or well, no, know, I'll but... break in because in order No, no, to I know be... what you're saying. I yeah. think that's funny as well. So yeah, you know. Anyway, it's not it's, it doesn't matter. I mean, by that point it doesn't really matter. And the movie isn't concerned with like the, you know, nuances of the justice system or anything like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. You know, it would have been interesting because, like, we know, you know, Gene Wilder as this urban cowboy, right, kind of is so great at riding this bull. It would have been interesting if they had, like, kind of speckled that in as the character trait. Like, maybe he was a former dancer who turned into a playwright or something or a gymnast as a kid. So there's some type of transition uh, crossover that you could see that skill, you know, going from the first uh, act into that whole thing. I guess, but I feel like part of the point and the comedy was that he was a weird savant at doing this and didn't even know why he was able to do it and certainly didn't anticipate being able to do it. And that it went with his whole character of being super naive and just strutting into every situation like, this will be fun and I'll make friends and it'll be nice. Yeah. And of course, my favorite of his friends was Grossberger. Erlen yes. Van Lith, the giant King Kong Bundy looking like man who has uh, the voice of an angel, Josh. <laughs> I assume that voice, not the voice of the actor. No, you're wrong. That oh. is totally wrong. He was wow. uh, um, he was an opera like soprano in like oh, New wow. York City operas. And he's an interesting guy. He also like graduated from MIT as a computer uh, major and um, and then sadly died young. But uh, he's an interesting character to uh, research. Also in movies like The Wanderers and The Running Man. Yeah, I uh, I underestimated that guy. And much like the characters in this movie, I judged him wrong based on his <laughs> appearance. And I, I shouldn't have. You're but, as bad as those Razzies, Josh. I, I mm. sure am. I sure am. So, yeah, but that's that's fun. I mean, they build up this ensemble of other kind of wacky prisoners around them that that they team up with to do the prison break. There's. The, the big guy who I, I also, again, this is very nitpicky, but it's fun that the big guy is super intimidating and then turns out to be a softie and they make friends with him. But also he is a mass murderer. Yeah, he murdered his whole family, but he doesn't he's the one who doesn't get out. Right. The other guys who are there like for, you know, wrongly uh, convicted or, you know, some lesser crime are there. Yeah, lesser so. crimes. George Stanford Brown's character, the gay character. Murdered his stepdad. Right. He, he, and he doesn't say that he didn't. And yeah. he didn't even do it for like a bad, like it wasn't even like he was being bullied or abused or something justified. I forget what he says, but it's a very trivial reason that he decides to murder his stepdad. So, I, I mean, I realize this is a silly comedy and, and these are absurd objections, but at least you could have made them minor crimes. I think the the other character who who helps them plan the whole thing because he's got his wife on the outside and he talks about having been uh, multiple appeals. And, Jesus. Jesus, there you go. Jesus, I think, says that he didn't do most of the crimes that he was accused of. And the one thing he was convicted of was a robbery or whatever, which is less serious than murdering your entire family. 
So there's that, but yeah. Question. I mean, look, it really comes down to, right. It's wilder. It's prior. It's a few, you know, uh, like I said, Grossberger is fun, but yeah, you can get into that. And then like all the bad guy, you know, authority figures, whether it's Craig T. Nelson or uh, a very wasted Jonathan Banks here, you know, or uh, the, the warden uh, Walter Beatty, not yeah. Warren Beatty, played by Barry Corbin. Like, you know, they're all like heavies. They're all just one note heavies. Right. So this is all there for that. Yeah. And they're pretty weak adversaries, too. It's not like they've they've set up a real dynamic uh, where these guys are going to be a threat. To our main characters or where they're even sort of comedically foiled. I mean, I think about Smokey and the Bandit that we talked about and the great dynamic between Burt Reynolds and Jackie Gleason in that movie and how Jackie Gleason's character is ridiculous and a buffoon, but is always really a threat to the Bandit. Ain't no coups going to get over on me. <laughs> Glad we got that in there. <laughs> Thank so, you. But Josh, you're right. Like, look, this is what it's 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 the Wilder and Pryor show. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think for me, because I just wasn't all that amused by them, that I end up my mind wanders to all of these little nitpicks because I'm not laughing. And if if you are laughing, if you find their stuff funny, then all of this doesn't really matter. I mean, as Ebert points out, in fact, it shouldn't matter. We don't want the movie to focus a whole lot on the plot because then it loses sight of the comedy. So should we rate this thing? Yeah, I, we can rate it. I mean, Dave, did you have any other uh, points about the movie you want to point out? Anything else that you loved that you wish we'd appreciated more? I mean, not really. Like you said, it, it's if you if you get their comedy, then it, you're going to enjoy it. The other things aren't really going to matter as much. What one thing that made me laugh, though, uh, you know, a sign of the times, I guess, is uh, that when they're trying to find the real people who did the crime, they said that they hang out at a raunchy strip club where tattooed guys hang out. That just made me laugh. <laughs> like, yeah, nowadays, idea, everybody has tattoos. Right. You know? The idea that the only people who would ever have tattoos are, are bank robbers and criminals. Yeah. And, and also that, that, that place exists. And the fact that we see Joe Beth Williams character, like go undercover as a waitress there clearly exists solely so that they can put some topless women in this movie. Sure. You know, I thought about that. Cause it's like, you know, now you would, do the opposite. You'd be like, take that out and make this PG-13, right? Right. And this, I think, was of that era of the rated R comedy. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And not just rated R. I mean, I'm sure this movie would have been rated R just for the amount of times that Pryor and Wyatt, well, mainly Pryor, the, the, the amount of swear words that he uses. So it's not just about the rating. It's also like, no, some studio executive was like, there needs to be some boobs in this movie. Figure it out. Writer Bruce J. Friedman, make it happen. And 10-year-old Dave was happy. <laughs> oh, and Dave's parents. Also. Did they did they cover your eyes while the boobs nah, were on screen? No. Part of life, I guess. They pointed out cup sizes. Right. Well, yeah, let's let, rate this thing. Let's do it out of five uh, chicken costumes, maybe. Sure. That's good. Uh, I'll go first. I gave it three. It was kind of teetering between that two and a half and three for me. But I like that third act. And, you know, the, the two leads are uh, a rascable. And uh, just charismatic and fun. So I gave it, I gave it three chicken costumes. I'm only going to give it two chicken costumes. And I, I just didn't find it funny. And it's, it's just clearly not for me. And that's all I got. That's all I got to say. Yeah, you didn't it. get it, like Dave said. I didn't get mm. it. I will, I will admit to not having gotten it. So Dave, how would you rate this? Get that kind of humor. 
But anyway, <laughs> uh, yes, uh, I I also went three. Um, okay. You know, yeah, I, I didn't think it held up as much as I had maybe hoped, but uh, you know, it has its moments. It's funny. Yeah, I feel like we've had a lot of Dave's picks where. Uh, you have enthusiasm from the vague past, and then your yeah. enthusiasm is not as strong once we watch the movie again. Uh, Dave's pick can be an excuse to uh, revisit something that you otherwise wouldn't have. Maybe, yeah, you know? it's a Dave's Childhood Memories episode here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Our old awesome movie year. Well, we'll come back then in a moment and talk about the legacy of Stir Crazy. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1980, we have been talking about our producer David Rosen's pick, Stir Crazy. And as we said, this movie was a huge hit. So a lot of its legacy was capitalizing on the fact that it was a huge hit. And in that, you could probably start with, as I mentioned earlier, the Stir Crazy TV series which didn't come about until 1985. And I feel like we've talked about a few times uh, these movies that end up having spinoff TV series in like the 80s. And I I don't know why it took five years to sort of capitalize on this and if people still remembered it as strongly. But in 1985, there was a Stir Crazy TV series that lasted nine whole episodes on CBS, which in an era when TV series were at least 22 episodes per season is very bad. Um, starred Larry Riley and Joseph Gazzaldo, two people I have definitely not ever heard of, and really was very, very loosely based. Uh, I mean, it was, they do play two friends who are uh, wrongfully accused of robbing a bank, uh, and then they escape from prison. But the show, as far as I could tell just from reading about it, is mainly about them being on the run and this like martial character that they made up for the, the show. It's the fugitive. It's right. It's a fugitive as a com as a buddy comedy, with these two guys on the run being chased by this marshal. And I tried to find like when we talked about the nine to five TV series, there were a bunch of uh, low quality episodes of it on YouTube. But this is going completely memory hold. I could not find anything except the opening title sequence, which I did watch, and makes it seem there's a montage of these two characters in all of these like wacky situations where they're trying to hide out. They're like stewards on a cruise ship and they're dressed as geishas and all of this ridiculousness, which it looked very bad. And I'm sure it was. Uh, No one from the movie was involved in this TV series, but I was kind of morbidly fascinated and hoped that I could see a little bit more. Yeah, and they're trying to track, you know, the real robbers. And Josh, you're so right. Of all the things that could lead off the legacy, it's that, not the Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor teaming or, you know, anything. Well, that, like that that was actually later. It didn't, it wasn't until 1989 that they've teamed up again for uh, See No Evil, Hear No Evil. So the the immediate legacy of the success of this movie was the shitty TV series. Fair enough. Uh, Barry Corbin, Josh, who played the warden, was also an urban cowboy. So in 1980, he was in two movies with a mechanical bull and a prison rodeo. Amazing. I've never seen Urban Cowboy, but that is quite the fact (laughs) that you have unearthed there. So, well, let's talk about Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. They did team up two more times uh, for See No Evil, Hear No Evil in 89, which you guys both saw and both liked, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's effective. You know, one is deaf and one is blind. And you're like, huh, they could really write themselves into a corner. But they really utilize 
that premise and the teamwork between the two of them really well. Yeah, definitely. And then their last team up was in 1991 in a movie called Another You, which, as far as I could tell, has a very poor reputation, was actually the last movie that either of them starred in, was made when Richard Pryor was already suffering a lot of health issues from multiple sclerosis and just sounds like it's probably kind of sad to watch. So we did not watch that one. Yeah, at least they got to, you know, do one more thing together. But I go back and I say, you know, Silver Streak, that's the that's the real, um, you know, the real winner of the bunch. Right. Um, And we talked about Gene Wilder when we did our episode on the producers, of course, a legendary comedic actor. And Bonnie Um, and Clyde, we talked. That's true. Uh, It's one of his earliest small roles in Bonnie and Clyde. This was later on in his career, despite it was interesting to me, despite the fact that this movie was a huge hit. He didn't do a whole lot more movie-wise after this, and really not a whole lot that was very successful. He did eventually write and direct a couple of movies that he starred in. But as I said, 1991, Another You, that was the last theatrical movie that he made. Later in his career, he did a lot of TV. He did TV movies and a lot of like sitcom guest appearances. He won an Emmy in 2003 for appearing on Will & Grace, and he died in 2017. So I mean, he kind of retired from movie making long before he passed away. I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, he was married to Gilda Radner and she died so young of cancer. And, it, you know, that took a lot out of him. But um, for from the 70s, uh, you know, there was no greater comic actor than Gene Wilder. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure that is true. But I, as I was watching this and I remember when we talked about the producers, I feel like for some reason, because I saw Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka when I was young, and he's great in that. He's perfect as Willy Wonka. And I think that just sort of imprinted in me. And every time I see him, I just think of him as this sort of like weird creep. And I can't find him endearing. I find him just weirdly off-putting in all of his roles. I think the weirdness is a, a part of his charm. I mean, dude, Young Frankenstein, come on, dog. Oh, and I do love Young Frankenstein. That's true. But I guess the the sort of weird off-puttingness of him is where I like him. And in a movie like this where, yeah, I mean, I guess he's weird, but he's meant to be this nice, likable guy. I just can't quite get on that wavelength. I always see him as being really weird too. Like, and, and, but that works for some of the roles and then the things where it doesn't work, it, you know, it lends to it not working. I, yeah, I guess, I don't know. I just am not on board with him as much as, as most people seem to be. Richard Pryor has an Emmy for writing a variety special where Lily, for Lily Tomlin, Lily, um, Five Grammys for Best Comedy Album, 21 comedy albums, uh, you know, as great a comedian as there's ever been, as influential as a comedian as there's ever been. And uh, as an actor, not just comedies, you know, Lady Sings the Blues and, you know, Jojo Dancer, Your Life is Calling, uh, along with some, you know, major comedies. Uh, One of the writers on Blazing Saddles, as we know, uh, Car Wash. Uh, I like his cameo in the Muppet movie. So there's a lot. Lot there. Yeah, I mean, post this movie, he was even a bigger star and did did some very mainstream stuff like Superman three and Brewster's Millions. But the toy was that after this I, that might have been before this, but this was certainly a, a period where he was a big mainstream star, but continued to be a huge stand up comedy star. So he could appear in these kind of more audience friendly movies, but still do his very raunchy, very personal stand-up. And that movie, Jojo Dancer, that you mentioned is a movie that he also wrote and directed that was an autobiographical film and uh, was, you know, a more, a more serious effort from him. But 
again, he, you know, he had a lot of health problems. He had multiple sclerosis. So later in his life was not able to do much on screen. His final starring role was also in Another You and then had a couple cameo appearances, uh, including I think his last on-screen role in a film was in David Lynch's Lost Highway, which is sort of weird and Mm. random. He died in 2005. And I mean, I don't know that I've ever really seen any Richard Pryor stand-up comedy, but Jason, as a comedian, I mean, obviously Richard Pryor is one of the biggest. Yeah, he's as influential as anyone there is. And if you look at kind of this, like you you use the word personal, right? You know, if you look at that style of comedy, which a lot of it today has gotten to the point where it's personal, but they don't have the jokes anymore. It's just like, okay, you told me a story, but where's your punchline? That's what Richard Pryor did so well, right? He made it personal and just cracked people up because he was hilarious. Right, yeah. right. And I think still, even though he was in so many of these big movies, people think of him first as a comedian and as an actor second. Right. Well, you would say him, George Carlin, Lenny Bruce, that's that kind of triumvirate. And then, you know, if, you, if you're if you a comedy nerd, you throw like Robert Klein underneath as these guys who were kind of modifying the form in their own ways uh, as stand-up was kind of finding its place in America. Right. Well, in the 80s is a huge time for stand up and a huge time for like the evolution of stand up, I think. By the way, the toy was 82. And uh, that was another of my favorites as a kid. I mean, I I loved that movie so much. Haven't seen it since I was a kid as well, just like this one. Right. And so I think that was that era where he would do that, which was that actually was a movie, I think, that was for kids or that was friendly to kids. Sure. He would do stuff like that. And then he would also do this this crazy out there you know, really daring, bold stand-up stuff while he yeah. was making money for mainstream films. Josh, George Stanford Brown, who you have mentioned, uh, became an Emmy-winning director for Cagney and Lacey. He also acted in Roots and North and South. So, you know, the Razzies, he got past it. He did. Unlike another uh, nominee or winner from the first Razzies that we talked about in our episode on John Cassavetti's Gloria, poor little kid, John Adams, whose acting career ended after his Razzie win. Yes, you're right. George Sanford Brown went on to have a perfectly long and respectable career, uh, was also briefly married to Tyne Daly, one of the stars of Cagney and Lacey. So good for him. And a lot of these other actors that we've mentioned are character actors. You know, we, we covered No Country for Old Men, which Barry Corbin's in. And now I think he's on uh, Yellowstone. He got two Emmy nods for Northern Exposure. Craig T. Nelson won the Emmy for Coach, Coach. deservedly so, you know. And, uh, you know, I think most people, and what a year for him in 1980 between this and Private Benjamin. But I think most people now know him as the voice of Mr. Incredible. He was in the Poltergeist movies and as a recurring character on Young Sheldon. Yeah, both of those guys are in a million, a million things. I remember Barry Corbin as the main character's dad on The Closer. And he has that very distinctive voice that, I mean, he looks so different here than he does as he got older, whereas Craig T. Nelson more or less looks the same. But once he starts speaking, you recognize that. Oh, I've heard that voice before, even if you don't recognize him when you look at him. So yeah, both of those guys in a million, million things. Yeah, Charles Weldon, very influential uh, theater director and kind of uh, art maker in theater. Jack Graham. Played by Jonathan Banks, who's, you know, on fire right now, obviously Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And it's nice that he's having such a uh, boom time in uh, his later career. Yeah. And he's talk about looking different, like he's completely unrecognizable. And we mentioned him also in Beverly Hills Cop, where he's also just like you would never realize that that's the same guy who's on Better Call Saul and, and Breaking Bad. 
Yes. Uh, Joel Brooks was in a number of sitcoms, just all of them. And uh, of course, my favorite is that he played Mrs. Garrett's son on The Facts of Life. Girls, girls, girls. That's an impression I didn't expect. That's <laughs> Mrs. Garrett doing a Motley Crue song. Char- Charlotte Ray there. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Josh, Joe Beth Williams, also a very successful career, uh, despite uh, her character not having much to do here. The Big Chill. Kramer versus Kramer, private practice, three Emmy nods for her, and a director uh, Oscar nod uh, or an Oscar nod for a short film she directed called On Hope. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, she definitely also feels like a studio note of like, we need a woman. <laughs> you know, we need one female character in this movie. Gives give one of the leads a love interest so that there is literally a single woman in our cast list. And right. There she is. Well, you got Craig T. Nelson and her teaming up in Poltergeist. And you had mentioned Jesus Miguel Angel Suarez, a, a big telenovela star. So I think we've kind of run down the uh, the lot of them. We know Sidney Poitier, a uh, legendary actor uh, who we've talked about before and a successful director, as we've mentioned. Yeah, although weirdly, I mean, we talked about Ghost Dad. That was the last movie he directed in in 1990, and I'm not sure why he stopped directing because he kept acting for another decade or so. Retired from acting in 2001, so I'm not sure what it was. Like, it could just be because as an actor, you know, you're doing the movie and you're when your part's done, you're done. As a director, that's a you know years long process. Right? That's true. That's true. Um, and maybe yeah, maybe he was burned out on that. And of course, once you make Ghost Dad, like. There's nowhere else to go, you know, but down. Gene Wilder, five movies where he played a man wrongly accused of committing a crime. That seems like something that he would be uh, fitting for. So, yeah, that that makes sense. Silver Streak, The Frisco Kid, Hanky Panky, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, and this one. Yeah. Um, The only other person I I thought we might want to note is the writer Bruce J. Friedman who was a very successful novelist and playwright and obviously was known before this film for that because at least Vincent Camby mentioned him as like a selling point for this movie. He wasn't a big screenwriter. He does have co-writing credits on Splash and uh, The Lonely Guy with Steve Martin and Dr. Detroit, a Dan Aykroyd movie yeah. that is a famous giant failure that whatever year that was, if we ever get to that, I'm, you know, I think sure it's 83. Good. Dave probably watched it on his third birthday. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> we might end up talking about that as a flop sometime in the future, but yeah, mainly he was a very successful playwright and novelist. And this is probably his most notable uh, screenwriting credit as a solo writer. You know, Splash was a huge, huge hit, but he was just one of a few writers on that. I, I was reading about Hannah Weinstein, um, the uh, producer, and very interesting life. She was a political activist. She was, I don't know if she was like blacklisted, but she basically had to move to England where she started producing a lot of um, uh, TV shows like The Adventures of Robin Hood. And, you know, she kind of, was giving a lot of those blacklisted writers chances to work. So that was interesting. Uh, she also started the Third World Cinema Corporation, which made movies for, um, you know, with African-Americans before it was like a mainstream thing. Like, you know, it was on the fringe for so long, which is crazy, right? But, uh, you know, one of them, is she produced Grease Lightning. Okay. Dave, did you want to say anything about the legacy of this movie? How it shaped your worldview and your life? after your childhood gene wilder is better hair than you (laughs) (laughs) thanks jason yeah i think that's a good uh uh comparison to make no not really i mean uh, we've said it earlier i think that it's impact on on super broad comedies you know i thought of the uh 
the Will Ferrell uh, comedy Get Hard with, oh, with uh, Kevin Hart. Yeah, that with movie Kevin is Hart. So so bad. I don't even think I ever saw that, but uh, but things like that though. Yeah, all these just super broad, like you know, a, a simple setup, and then just let the let the big famous comedy actors riff. Yeah, and that movie, even though it was like 30 plus years later or whatever, far more homophobic than this movie. (laughs) I'd imagine so, yeah. (laughs) So that is Stir Crazy, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can check us out in the prison of social media. You can check us out on social media. We're at awesomemovieyear.com. It has an RSS feed. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. Josh, there are rumors I might be getting a new website soon. What? So that's good because then I can stop trashing my own website. Go for Jason.com, which you shouldn't go to, but you should go for go to go for Jason on Letterboxd and follow me there, along with all my other social medias, Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy. Yeah, my website uh is not gonna get an upgrade, but it's tolerable. It's a Josh Bell hates everything.com. Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. Hey, Josh, also, uh, I'm doing a lot of comedy and hosting a lot of trivia nights in Las Vegas lately. So if anyone wants to come, just uh, uh, DM me on the Instagram, Jason Harris Comedy. Yeah, come see Jason in the flesh. It's uh, quite yeah. an experience. We have a good time. Mm-hmm. And what do we have in our next episode, Jason? Uh, our next episode, Josh, will be our cult classic. Uh, interesting film. Uh, William Friedkin wrote and directed, starring Al Pacino, called Cruising. And that should be quite an interesting discussion. So tune in next time for Cruising. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.